is the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. to horror queers we're talking hand modeling we're talking i like weird and we're talking pussy cats and i'm joe and i'm trace and we're talking fico zams on the miss kate <laughs> uh i don't speak doctor yeah we're talking may everybody uh joe i, I haven't seen this movie in a well, honestly since it came out and i gotta say i was really impressed with how much it, hold, it held up for me yeah, it's a legitimately good movie, although I will say it's not going to be for everybody, and the cat does die. I did forget about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's arguably the hardest death in the movie. I honestly really only remembered Angela Bettis and Jeremy Sisto and like a little bit of Anna Ferris in this movie, but yeah, we have been asked to cover this. I feel like since the podcast started, we've had people tell us, oh, I really wish I would cover May, so I'm really excited to finally get to do that, but... But, 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 before we do that, we do have a very special guest. Ladies and gentlemen and everyone in between, she is a senior writer at the AV Club and a programmer of movies at the Music Box, and also one of the very first journalist friends I ever met when I started my career in film criticism. Please welcome Katie Reif. Ooh. Trace! Joe! Trace, you were also one of my very first journalist friends. Wait, really? Yeah! The first couple years I went to Fantastic Fest, I was too scared to talk to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it was one of those things. It was my first year at Fantastic Fest, and there was like, it was one of those, um, oh, it's a press brunch at, well, at Tim League's house. <laughs> Different times, so, it's okay. Yeah. So we went there, and it was you and Mr. Vanderbilt, and I don't know, we just started talking about something, and I was like, oh, good. Like, I don't feel like, you know, the kid in the cafeteria on the first day of high school anymore. Yeah, yeah, totally. And then you invited me to your wedding, which I thought was so sweet. Oh yes, we did. <laughs> it, it was a, it was a trip though. I mean, that that that, that was a long flight. <laughs> yeah, I was like this is in Texas and I can't go, but I really truly did appreciate the gesture. I thought it was so nice. Oh, that's so sweet. Oh no, I can't make it. Sorry, bye bye. <laughs> Well, because no, we had, like so the the year after I met Katie, like w Andrew had done d went the next year to Fantastic Fest, and we and we both met a bunch of people, and like he got to meet Katie and everyone, and like yeah, so so some of the people that we just liked the most, basically, we sent them invitations because we were like, oh yeah, we want them. Yeah, it was a popularity contest. We all understood. <laughs> I didn't know you yet, Joe. <laughs> oh, I I couldn't have come. It's such a long flight. I'm sorry, but thank you, but no. <laughs> Weddings are real expensive, as I'm sure Trace can attest. So, you know, you can't take it too personally. That's why that's why it's so nice to get an invite. It's like, oh, you spend money on me? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so Katie, can you please tell us, so why May? Well, you know, name drop a little bit here. I wrote a essay about May for Shudder's The Bite newsletter back in, uh, I believe it was January. Mm -hmm. And that was my reconnecting with this movie after not having seen it in quite a long time since I was in college when it came out. And I'm really interested in female antiheroes and like unlikable female characters. And May is 
she's not the original, but she's like a building block of that particular type of character. I think you're right. I read a few pieces, a few different interpretations of the character today, because this movie, it makes me very sad. Yeah, and the character makes me sad, but I was reading a piece and I was like, I keep forgetting that she's also a totally crazy person. Uh, we don't say crazy. We oh, say I'm sorry. that she is suffering from some mental illness. She's a lot like Jeffrey Dahmer to me. She's like a fictional female Jeffrey Dahmer. She oh, kills because she's so, so, so lonely. And everyone's going to leave unless she kills them. But that's so fascinating because I think if you just randomly polled people who watched this film, they would find her very sympathetic. Like, yes, she's killing people, but you feel bad for her. As Trey said, right? Like, it's it's a sad movie. She's almost a pitiable character. Yeah, it's definitely framed that way. Well, I, I think the difference is that she's a fictional character. And so you can, like, real life is always going to have a lot more problematic elements, I guess you say. Although this film, I can't defend everything about this movie. So, like, oh, God, this was the I Kissed a Girl era. And mm-hmm. there is... <laughs> you mean the predatory lesbian action going on in here? I'm not a fan of that. If I could just cut that out of this movie, I would love that. Because, yeah, it, it bumps me out. <laughs> I love Anna Ferris in this role, and I think she's vamping it up gloriously. Like, she's fantastic. But yes, it is a little uncomfortable. Like, if I was a lesbian and I saw this representation on screen, I would be put off by it, I think. Yeah, that's the thing. There weren't so many lesbian characters back then, and so, you know, it's a little, it's disappointing. You know, there weren't, so, hey, so then, then I, I'm going to jump right into this then. So I liked the Ambrosia character. Like, we just see her legs. And honestly, I think until, well, until the scene before she dies. <laughs> um, <laughs> she's not a character. She's a set of legs. Yeah, but when I was watching, I was like, oh, that's a really cool creative choice. I kind of like it. But then thinking I'm on, I'm like, oh, well, should I, should I like that? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's just one of those things that's, it's dated, you know, like this movie came out in 2003. And I, I don't know if it would be played the same now. You know, it's just, like I said, it was the Katy Perry era and like lesbianism was in vogue at the time. You know, yeah. like like a very specific male gaze sort of lesbianism was sort of a cultural phenomenon at the time. And maybe he's satirizing it in this movie. I mean, that's the thing, right? It's like intention versus impact. <laughs> like, I don't know what he intended with this movie, but I will say that I do love this movie. <laughs> Okay, Trace. <laughs> I'm not going to try to unpack it. I'm just going to say I like it and then walk away. That's that's what you do, right? You just say it's this. It's okay. I'm, I, 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 there's nothing wrong with it. It's perfect. <laughs> yes. Yes, listeners. Before we begin recording, we literally had a conversation about how none of us can be in movie groups on Facebook because there's too many people who are just making unrefined comments about hey has anybody seen this famous movie i think it's called psycho or i think it's called halloween and trace just more or less gave us the podcasting equivalent of that (laughs) i will say though that had lucky mckee not made any more movies i think this movie might look better in hindsight maybe yes but like katie we covered all cheerleaders die back in january and Woof. But that movie has its fans, but watching it, I'm like, oh. And granted, mm-hmm. that was a co-directing effort with Chris Syvertson, who is one of the editors on this movie, one of the three editors on this movie. And because he directed I Know Who Killed Me, I feel like those are Syvertson's impulses. I love I Know Who Killed Me. Oh, I do too. <laughs> <laughs> that movie's so much fun. <laughs> 
I don't know, Trace. I think you're also skipping over the most obvious pick, the woman. which is that he goes from this to the woman. And there's a lot of feminist readings as well as critiques of that film. But I think you can see a correlation that Lucky McKee does like to make movies about complicated women and whether or not people are put off by the depictions of femininity and sexuality that he has in his films. I think that's sort of how you choose to read the film. What's interesting is that The Woman is the only other Lucky McKee film that I really like. I've seen a few of his other ones. I saw Kindred Spirits. It was okay. Oh, yeah. No, I I was really curious. Yeah, it's the Lifetime movie. Oh, right. Okay. Well, Lifetime bought it. They didn't pay for it. Right. It did festivals and then they bought yeah, it. it, it yeah, I, I saw it at a festival date. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, it, it did festivals and then and then they bought it, I think. Mm-hmm. Oh, here, I'm going to plug myself. I'm writing a whole <gasps> okay. column on Lifetime movies for the AV Club now because I'm very interested in them because I truly feel that they are like the B cinema of today is cable TV movies. 100%. Yes. Like sci-fi movies, it's very obvious that that's the tradition carrying on the Roger Corman, but Lifetime, it's uh, it carries on the exploitation tradition in some ways that's very interesting. It's toned down for TV, but like thematically, it runs with a lot of shit that I think is really interesting. So called Once in a well, Lifetime every other Thursday on DAVClub.com. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you like The Woman, Katie? I li- yeah, I like The Woman. I feel like it's one of those movies that's like it's making its point with a sledgehammer. Yeah, right. it's very blunt in in its point, but yeah, I like seventies exploitation movies too. So you know, I'm not offended by using graphic violence to make a point about exploitation of women. I'm not above it. All right, <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first, everyone. <laughs> But it is really interesting, right? I mean, he clearly is developing really strong relationships with these female creatives, right? Like, I I get every indication that he and Angela Bettis worked well together because, of course, she then made her spiritual follow-up. Like, she made her directorial debut with Roman, where he's more or less cast in the May role. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, he developed a great working relationship with, is it Pollyanna McIntosh? Yeah. Yeah. And so, he put out a movie that's sort of a pseudo-sequel to The Woman last year. Darlin'. Yeah, Darlin', yeah. Which I quite like, to be honest. I did I did not. Why yeah, I wasn't really a fan of Darlin', but... <laughs> okay, okay. Well, maybe we'll uh, circle back to this one day, because that film is loaded with lesbian subtext. It is. But, but wait, but Joe, because you haven't seen The Woman yet, though, have you? I have not seen the woman. I've read. I'm not, I'm not calling you out. I'm not calling you out. But, but no, I think, and maybe I'm wrong, but I think if you had seen the woman first and then seen what, for me, that movie is a, like the tones are all over the place and they don't really work for me. And it's very different from the woman, which I'm okay with, <laughs> but it doesn't fully like mesh well for me. But I mean, that that's Mac- Macintosh's film. You know, that's not a McKee film. Exactly. Yeah. I, I think you're right on with that, Trace. Hmm. Hmm. But then we've got this first film, which feels, in some regards, like a step between I'm making a short, like you, Trace, and Katie. I haven't seen this probably since it first came out or maybe Mm -hmm. in college. So it's been at least a decade to maybe 15 years. But when I was watching the film and we get to Adam's short film, I felt like, oh, is that just Lucky McKee's short film or like a version of like an early draft that he did? And then this feels like the next step creatively where he's 
trying to figure out the themes and the kinds of characters that most interest him. And then the woman is that maturation, right? Oh, we'll come back to May, but have y'all seen The Woods? Mm-mm. No. Okay. I don't like it. Okay. <laughs> but it's it's Bruce Campbell, Patricia Clarkson, Agnes Bruckner, and it's about like an all, it's Lucky McKees. It's the one he did after this, but before The Woman. But it was one of those, like all the boys love Mandy Lane films where it was like, it was shelved for like so long. Right. It's kind of a Suspiria-y type film with Patricia Clarkson as like the head mistress slash witch. There's like a tree or something in it. That's yeah, one of my favorite subgenres is witch schools. Yeah. yeah, so I, not to go through his entire filmography, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I just don't think for me he's matched me personally. Yeah. No, okay. I don't think so either, because even the woman, um, that's based on a Jack Ketchum story, so he didn't write that one, and uh, you know, you can make a great adaptation of someone else's work, but if you really want to get into like auteurism, which I'm not sure I completely believe in, but there's a part of me that thinks that people have stamps that they put on put on yeah. movies, and considering that he wrote this one too. It's like you can be a great singer, but if you write your own material, it takes things to another level, you know? Mm -hmm. I think I lean more on the agreeing with the auteur theory that it exists, I mean. With this particular film, though, I was paying more attention, and this isn't just because Ryan Johnson was involved, but I was paying more attention to the editing and the cinematography in it than I was the directing, I guess, which I, I get that the director oversees those aspects, but, like, I was seeing more skill in those areas. Well, I think they're both great, you know? I think the cinematography in this film is very good. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and also, I'd be remiss if we didn't mention Angela Bettis' lead performance in this film, which I think is fantastic. And what's interesting, so th- this came out February 7, 2003. It got a limited theatrical release, but it was doing the festival circuit. Um, I think it did Sundance in January of 02. That same year is when Angela Bettis played Carrie in NBC's Carrie miniseries. So That's so interesting because, like, Carrie is such an obvious predecessor to this type of character and this yes. movie. Mm-hmm. First of all, there were reviews for this movie at the time that were calling this a slasher film. <laughs> I <laughs> guess, man. But then you had others that were saying, oh, it's really more of a drama with horror elements, which is, I mean, I, I call it a horror film, whatever, because I just... Yeah, we need a to call drama it with horror. horror elements is something you say when you don't really like horror films, and you're, like, trying to get something up the backhanded compliment. <laughs> right, oh, yeah. right. But I think that Carrie falls into that aspect, too. You know, you spend the first, like, 70 minutes watching her kind of get tormented, and the glass starts to crack, if you will. Ugh. And then, yeah, the last 20 minutes is a horror show. So I think that we can safely call both Carrie and May horror films. Yeah, I think, well, I think, well, I think they're doing a similar thing in that they take so long getting you into her head so that you kind of understand why she does what she does at the end of the movie. Exactly. Yes. That and the fact that it's kind of like watching a slow motion car wreck, right? Like, not just because of the way this movie opens with a glimpse of violence, but also because we can tell from the very beginning that this relationship with Adam is doomed and things are not going to go well. And I think that infusion of dread and apprehension that builds over the course of the film, that's synonymous with horror for me. Yeah. Well, I'm not excusing any of May's actions in this film, but both Adam and Polly don't communicate well with her. <laughs> oh, this is a movie with people who do not talk about anything with each other. It's all surface level conversations and things could have been avoided. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. I can see how it's frustrating in that way. Like if you're a viewer and you're not really kind of used to this type of story, I can see you watching this and being like, why don't they just 
tell her or ask her something, you know? But that's also the point, because honestly, that happens in real life. Oh, yeah. I mean, this movie feels extremely current in the way that it's depicting relationships. Like, they mm-hmm. don't need the updated Tinder, Grinder, whatever online profiles to, like, ghost each other and not mesh and not talk properly. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting you bring up apps because that is something to me, like, I feel like there's, like, a really dark and kind of mean joke at the middle of this movie which is somebody like adam probably goes around being like i just wish i had a girlfriend that was into the things i'm into and it's like well careful what you wish for motherfucker you know there's sort of a dark joke in the middle of the movie about that i think that and and this is like a real life scenario like i mean i think you don't want to date someone who's just like you because i think in every relationship you need space and if you date someone who's exactly like you you're not gonna get that space (laughs) because you're doing everything together (laughs) but that's just me but one thing i think is successful about the movie is you know it's not going to work out right Mm -hmm. but i want it to work out like when they're watching a student film and the cannibalism comes on and she starts scooting closer next to him it's like there's a part of me that's like oh you two man in another world you guys would own a taxidermy shop and it would be so cute (laughs) the the moment towards the end of the film when he confronts her in the park and he says like i'm sorry things didn't work out like before he says that he made it clear before that like he does not want to be around this girl like he is like i dropped her she's nuts blah 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 and then he confronts her he not confronts he approaches her in the park in a very friendly way and i found myself being like oh maybe they'll work it out yeah! Like, <laughs> They'll kill people together! It'll be so cute! <laughs> no, I found on this rewatch more than ever that I think that Adam is just the biggest shit heel. He is. He's so obviously a fuckboy, and I was like, wow, I never got that impression. He seemed like a kind of cool, slightly deluded art cinema bro the first time I watched it. Mm-hmm. And this time around, I was like, oh, I've met Adam's. They're all over Twitter, and they're fucking asshole. Yeah, he's a total fuckboy, and that's another thing that kind of plays into the careful what you wish for thing. It's like, he kind of deserves what he gets in some ways, and so yes. does Polly, you know? Well, yeah, I was going to ask, so, so what, do y'all, what do y'all think of the Polly character, then? She's the predatory lesbian, yes. <laughs> Absolutely that. I feel more sympathetic to her, because I do, I do feel like she's actually trying to make an effort to clarify... Okay, so she seduces May, and that's not great because obviously May is in a vulnerable position. But then later on, when May swings by, Polly's kind of like, oh, I didn't think this was exclusive. I'm not really a one-woman gal. I've kind of got to hit that because look at those gams. And to me, Polly at least is making the effort to say, here's where our relationship stands. Whereas Adam, it's just easier for him to pretend that the washing machine doesn't work so he can ghost her. I agree with you. I agree with you. I also think... Fucking eh, men, man. Well, but it, it's a stereotype. I mean, I know less about the world of like the stereotypes of lesbians, but, like, I know, like, with gay men, it's like, oh, like, we're a bunch of sluts. We just want to fuck everything. Like, we can't commit. We can't keep a steady relationship because we just want to fuck everything. And I feel like that's kind of what they're going for with Polly, but... I do like her. I empathize with her more, like like you, Joe, than I empathize with Adam because... well. I think that there could have been more communication on her part like from the very beginning. <laughs> I feel like the implication is there where it's like Polly, because she's a lesbian, assumes that, oh, this is just what we do. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not excusing that behavior, but I think that Polly assumed, wrongly, that May was in the same boat. 
Oh, yeah. like she just assumed that they are on the same level and it was like, yeah, maybe we'll hook up and it'll be fun. Yeah. Right. Like we're flirting at work. We're probably going to fuck someday. And then when we do, cool. You know, maybe we can do it again sometime. Well, I know yeah. the stereotype is that lesbians bring the U-Haul on the first date. I know that's a stereotype. <laughs> yes. Well, no, so, b- 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 Polly is a gay man, but a lesbian. Like Exactly. In, in terms of stereotypes. Sure. Yeah, yeah. The way she acts. Yeah. I totally see that. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Which I, I don't know. Because I, I don't think Lucky McKee is gay, right? Like he's totally straight. Who can say, but we don't know for sure. I don't know. Doesn't matter. (laughs) It's okay. Um, His obsession with lesbians, hot lesbians, seems to suggest that he's a straight man. But you know what, though? Ambrosia's a real bitch, like, from the get-go. Yeah. I mean, you can be a hot lesbian who wants to fuck around and be a bitch, Trace. That's true. You can. (laughs) (laughs) Lesbians come in all different boxes. (laughs) (laughs) But not with flaps, as we discovered a couple no. of weeks ago. <laughs> no. I mean, you know, not to get too deep into... I would call myself a Kinsey, too. If you know what I mean? I tend to date right. men, but, like, I have casually dated women before. And, mm-hmm. like, and, you know, there is casual sex in that world, so... Yes. I mean, yeah, but again, communication is key, and this no no character in this movie, even May, to be honest, communicates properly. <laughs> I feel like if I mean, granted, like May has like no social skills, we we see that. But if she had just been like, so this is normal, right? Or so I'm gonna stand outside your door for two hours, and that's what people do. <laughs> but I think the the other issue, and that's why we have the prologue, is that yes. she's basically stalled out at an infantile state. So mm-hmm. the idea of her having adult conversation, much less adult relationships, she is just not there yet. And that's why she falls so hard for Adam is because he's basically her first crush from what we can tell. So apparently the original opening for this film was a lot like a longer segment of her as a child. So it wasn't just like essentially like an opening credit sequence. I mean, I don't know how long it was, but I'm going to imagine it was 10 to 15 minutes of her as a kid. And then they realized that it was taking too long to get to the point of the film. So they cut it down. It's interesting because the film takes so long. I I mean, I suppose that depends on whether you think that the murders are the point of the film. Because you could argue that it takes a long time to get to the point to begin with. Well, yeah. I saw reviews that said, like, oh, it's much better once, like, the hack and slash starts happening. Oh like, the God. build up is really tedious. And I was like, what movie are these people watching? I know! <laughs> like, it's not Jason Bourne. It's kind of the opposite of Jason Voorhees because you have so much backstory. Or Michael yeah. Myers, I suppose, is the one with the least backstory. But you know what I mean. Yeah. It's all about the psychology, and if you're looking at this movie for payoff in terms of blood and violence, this is not the right type of movie for you. Um, I mean, it gets there, but like that is not the purpose of this film. No, you're right. I still think that if you're a gore hound, huh, I think there's enough for you in the last 20 minutes of this movie. I but, think so too. It gets like I, new French extremity. It gets like nasty towards the end. It does. A it lot does. of broken glass, you know, like just like disgusting, dead, mutilating corpses and jabbing yeah. your own eye out with broken glass. And like, and it's all very graphic, you know, it's on screen. So yeah, a creative decision that I like in this movie is that a lot of the kills, I mean, really kind of sans Anna Ferris's death. First glance appear to be off screen kills. And then the film flashbacks to show you the murders. So it delays the satisfaction and kind of like cock teases you and then goes, wait, never mind. We're going to show you anyway. This movie is a lot funnier than I remembered. 
I remember thinking it was, oh, there's some some dark comedic beats. I actually think that there's a bunch of parts in this movie that are kind of full-blown comedy, and then some of them are also full-blown horror comedy. Like, I'm sorry, but I cackled during the blind children on glass part. And not just because I'm like a cretin (laughs) who enjoys watching children get hurt. (laughs) That part is genuinely funny because it's horrifying, but you're also like, oh my god, why won't you just let go of this box? I didn't laugh during that. Because I think because I knew where it was going. I mean, obviously, we all knew where it was going. But I was just so consumed with, like, sadness. Yes, it, there's a lot of humor in this. Um, as Joby said, like, it's genuine hu- humor, horror comedy, a lot of gallows humor. And, yes. yeah, that's it. So, <laughs> okay. I'm going to wrap us up. <laughs> well, we'll we'll unpack it when yes. we get to it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, just really quick before we jump into this plot. May released February 7th in theaters, uh, 2003. Distributed by Lionsgate Pictures, um, when it was still the Lion, um, not all the gears. And we've got a runtime of 93 minutes and a budget of $1.7 million. It opens in nine theaters uh, in February of that year. Uh, number 58 ranked with $34,000. Uh, it goes on to gross about 150000 domestically and 100000 internationally for a worldwide total of about $250,000. The reception is mostly positive. We're looking at a 68% of Rotten Tomatoes with a 6.08 out of 10 average score. But our good friend Ebert, whose opinions on horror made no sense, gave it a 4 out of 4 star rating. And yeah, he loves this movie. Um, that, sorry, that's what I mean by it doesn't make any sense. Because he'll hate, like, give something 0 stars or 1 star. and But then give something else that's very, very similar a four-star rating. <laughs> it's so perplexing to me. <laughs> yeah, well. I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that he doesn't consider this a horror film and that he probably thinks that Bettis's performance saves everything. Yeah, I, I think the exact phrase was like, oh, like the, in, the, the last shot of the movie would be ridiculous or funny in any other movie, but this movie earns it, which I agree with. Yeah, that's true. It's interesting because when I was doing that thing for the Shutter newsletter, I read up, you know, some background on this. And Angela Bettis put a lot of herself in the character. Like, uh, Lucky McKee wrote in the lazy eye because Angela Bettis kind of has one in real life. Oh, really? Oh. It does feel like a very collaborative effort between the two of them. And I don't say that just because the only other Lucky McKee film that I'm really familiar with is All Cheerleaders Die, which feels like it has no connection to anything authentically female. But this character feels almost as much Bettis's as it does McKee's to me. I agree. And the fact that Bettis hasn't, like, her career never really took off in the way that I would have liked is very sad to me. Because I think she's a revelation in this film. Well, she's in another film. It's called 12 Hour Shift. It's going to play at Virtual Fantasia. Oh, yes. Yes, I'm very excited for that one. Yeah, Bria Grant directed it. She is fantastic in that movie. She's really great. Okay. But yeah, uh, and then Letterboxd, we've got a score of 7 out of 10, which I think since we've started checking Letterboxd scores, Joe, might be one of the highest Letterboxd scores we've had since we started doing that. Yeah, not a bad one. I think The Handmaiden is still the one to beat. Oh, yes. That (laughs) That movie is a masterpiece. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think we're going to beat that one anytime soon. But yeah, I mean, nothing really about production. Just, you know, it's Lucky McKee's, not really his directorial debut, because technically his directorial debut is the student film All True Leaders Die. Right. But we're not going to count that. Yeah. And then he wrote this too, which I think that that'll be something interesting to discuss as we get into the film too, is, you know, we have presumably a straight white man writing this queer, flawed, troubled woman character, female character. Well done. 
Yeah, I was trying to think of all the right words to say. <laughs> we can get into it more later, but I think he kind of puts guys like himself on the rack a little bit in the character of Adam as well. Yeah, yeah, you're right. But yeah, Joe, kick us off. All right. So after a brief flash of a screaming woman, we're introduced to May as a child. As we mentioned, she does have a lazy eye, as well as an overbearing but well-intentioned mother. Not gonna lie, I got a little sleepaway camp vibe from this. See, I, I was going Margaret White, but that's just because I was, like, stuck on Carrie. Fair. Actually, I think I saw that comparison made quite a few times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I will say that her Carrie is not terrible. It's a miniseries for NBC in 2002, but it's not terrible. That's yeah, pretty high praise, we... considering the circumstances. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I believe you've mentioned it before as the second best Carrie. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I think I did, actually. <laughs> That would be a callback to our episode on the Rage, Carrie 2. Yep. All right, so she does have this well-intentioned mother who gives her an eye patch, thinking that it's going to help her. Of course, it just makes her an outcast, and she has no friends. So the mother once again overcompensates by giving her a doll named Susie, but Susie is not the kind of doll you can play with. She must be kept behind glass, Ugh. which will become important later. It will, and the foley work on the glass cracking is kind of one of my favorite parts of this film. I'd actually forgotten all about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's awesome. Wait. It's, it's really good. Well, there's so much broken glass in the movie, wait. you know? Yeah, but, but wait, Joe, you forgot about it, like, now or, like, before you rewatched it? <laughs> yes, before <laughs> I rewatched it. <laughs> okay, no, I thought you were saying, like, since you watched it yesterday. Oh, I forgot about that. What <laughs> <laughs> a bizarre thing to say. No. <laughs> I don't know, but... <laughs> All right, so we cut to May as an adult, played, as we've said, by Angela Bettis, and she is quiet, she's withdrawn, she doesn't really have any friends except Susie, who she still has. It's a little bit creepy, not gonna lie. (sighs) Susie just gives off that, like, early Annabelle vibe, where you're just like, there's nothing inherently scary about her, but the doll is freaky. Listen, a doll doesn't stay behind glass because it's harmless, that's all I have to say. (laughs) do y'all think there was ever consideration to make this doll have a voice absolutely yeah i i think i i preferred this version of it but i yeah i I just like i bet you they wanted to make that doll talk to her i could totally see it in like an early draft that the doll talks to her and tells her to kill and stuff but obviously it's more realistic to take it out (laughs) right There's also more opportunity for the audience to make up its mind about what's actually happening to May if the doll doesn't talk. If we hear a doll talking, we're either thinking, oh, it's supernatural or she's having a breakdown. No, I I know what you're saying. I think if they had the doll talk, it would have been more of a, is she crazy or is she not? But because they don't, and the constant sounds of the glass breaking, like, is clearly obviously mirroring her fractured psyche as she kind of descends more and more into, like, complete madness. Yeah. I think it makes it pretty clear from the get-go that's what's happening, which I think is good, so you're not focused on trying to figure out, is it real? Is it not? What's real? Mm -hmm. What's not? Yeah, and thank God you're also not spending time being like, oh, is the doll doing it to her? Not gonna lie, though, would have liked that movie, too, in a different movie. I think it's called The Brahms Boy 2. <laughs> yeah, like if the doll had a little knife and was, you know, doing the little stop-motion run. I like full moon movies. <laughs> I was gonna say, Katie, you are describing Puppet Master right now. <laughs> the doll looks like one of the Puppet Master puppets, right? It kind of looks like, um, what's the lead, what's the lead puppet's name? Um, oh, God. Blade? Blade. Blade. Yes. It kind of looks like Blade a little bit, to be like a female version of that. So wait, maybe Lucky McKee should do a Puppet Master movie. I mean, it has to be better than The Little Strike. Right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh. Well, I mean. 
fighting <laughs> words but yes <laughs> okay so she has no friends but she is obsessed with local mechanic adam played by jeremy sisto and i was actually very surprised to learn that he had already begun his run on six feet under at this point because i kind of thought that he had done clueless in 95 and then disappeared from the scene mm-hmm I will say that he has long hair in this movie, but not the long hair I don't like. I think he's hot here. I think he's hot in Clueless, even though his character is terrible in Clueless too. Mm-hmm. But he is also very hot today. <laughs> like, oh, yes. he He's just a very attractive man. He's always been hot and will continue to be hot. Yeah, the thing <laughs> about the character of Adam is just like, I agree. Like, I would date this guy. And also, I would date this guy in the sense that, like, you know, some shitty dude in a who's like, oh, you ever heard of Dario Argento? Like, uh, that's happened. Well, to me. <laughs> when we get to that damn film of his, I, w- <laughs> mm-hmm. I have thoughts. We have thoughts about the film, right? I have thoughts about the film. <laughs> but the way he's introduced, though, it's like he's coming in from a hard night at the car. He's covered in grease. And the camera is fucking him, basically. Oh, yeah. This is full on, like, Lucky McKee's crash. Y- yes. <laughs> <laughs> somebody's gonna get fucked it might be him it might be may it might be that car we don't know (laughs) put it on the (laughs) blu-ray god i love it i need a cronenberg audio commentary now (laughs) uh okay so yeah she is obsessed with adam and more specifically she's obsessed with his hands and uh she's also quite interested in the neck on her flirty co-worker polly played by anna ferris in Mr. Zarkasian's Animal Hospital. So here's the thing. My one issue with the Polly character is that she seems illiterate. <laughs> um, I mean, you can get a job and still be illiterate. But is she supposed to be genuinely illiterate? Or is she just supposed to be, like, funnily making jokes about the names? Like, calling it a scoople? I just refuse to believe that there's a woman in her 20s who can't read the word scalpel. I think... Maybe you're misinterpreting it. I think that she's a racist because she can't be bothered to try to decipher Mr. Zarkasian's accent. So she hears what she wants to hear and then she makes fun of it. Yeah, I think it's more that, yeah. I definitely misinterpreted that because for all of this, I thought she was reading his notes. (laughs) No, she's just being an asshole. And like, like we were saying before, there's a lot of asshole characters in this film. Gotcha. Okay, well, I totally missed that, so that's my bad. Well, like I was saying up top, I actually don't really care for the character of Polly simply because I find the, you know, the real male gaziness of Mm -hmm. the lesbianism very dated, and I I don't actually like that very much. Do you like Ferris's portrayal of the character? I mean, she's funny. Like, she's a very funny actress. I like Anna Ferris as an actress, Mm -hmm. but, like, I feel like the character... There's some things that are mean about this movie that really work, and that is one mm-hmm. thing that's mean about the movie that doesn't really work. Interesting. I I don't feel the same way, but I can see that. I remember being more bothered by the way that she's dressed and styled and, like, her makeup. It was on three, man. What can you do? <laughs> <laughs> I, I swear to God, man, when I go back and I watch horror movies from the early 2000s, this is a diversion, but I was watching Pulse, the Kiyoshi Kurosawa movie from 2001. Some of the mm-hmm. worst fashions I've ever seen in my fucking life. <laughs> yes. We both come a long like, way like, oh and also God. not. <laughs> uh, okay, so the, that's basically our central 
It's not quite a love triangle because, of course, Polly and Adam have no idea about the other's existence, but Mm -hmm. May has a sexual connection to both of them, although she is more interested in that. So I feel like she's uh, curious about Polly, but she wants to, you know, date Adam. That's my interpretation of it. Yeah, no, I, I, I get that, too. I mean, I, I can see your average straight viewer being like, well, why is she all of a sudden interested in Polly? She's straight. It's like, no, no, no. She's queer. She's just learning things. I actually don't even know that May... She's not sexual, right? I think she's sexually interested in anatomical parts of people. Like, right, I think right. she has a fetish for different body parts, and it doesn't matter who it's on. See, for me, I think she has a fetish for affection. No matter who it's from. This is also Jeffrey Dahmer, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Katie coming in hot with the real truth. I mean, but no, you're you're right. I'm fascinated by this film as a bit of a fetish object. Like, I think it speaks to a type of kink. McKee's direction and some of the editing plays into this idea that people are actually the sum of their body parts or like the sum of their parts because of course we've got her fashion which is all made from patchwork sewing Mm. Uh, we've got the stuff about how she can sew things back onto animals like there's a lot of talk about sewing people up and it's interesting in a film construct kind of way, right? Because of course, that's what films are. There's scenes that are edited together to create some kind of cohesive statement. And in a way, like May, she's almost like making her own movie by patching people together to make a friend. Oh, wow. I never thought of it like that. But you're right. Yeah. Cool. I also just killed the conversation. So I apologize. <laughs> no, no, no. You owned you owned the conversation. There's a difference. <laughs> you made a good so, point. It's different. Meanwhile, I'm just thinking about Anna Ferris saying we can eat melons or something. I, okay. Yeah. I, this is where I was like, I need to reach out to a lesbian and be like, is that a euphemism? <laughs> no, it, it doesn't make sense, though, right? Because you eat pussy, but the melons are is, is a euphemism for breasts. I love how I say breasts for tits, but like pussy for vagina. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> My bad. Is your dad listening to this later? What are you doing? I don't know. I don't know. But no, yeah, the, the two words didn't work. I was like, what? What? But it's, it's like on affairs. Most fruits are vaginal, not bananas, but most fruits are vaginal, you know, because like, <laughs> like if you cut a melon in half, you have a, right. you know, a little, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. it's going to be so gross. You have a soft little thing that you can stick your fingers inside and they get all juicy. It's like a pussy, you know? Fruit is pussy. There you go. You know what? You two are disgusting. We actually see her eating a melon later. She literally just meant, come over to my house and we'll eat a melon. <laughs> no, no. That, that is her seduction tactic. She somehow found a way to make eating a melon sexy and that's, how, that's what she does. And she, no, because I'm imagining her doing it and she's like, you want me to do this to your pussy? Like, that's what she does. Yeah, like... Why does she sound like a sex offender when you do it? (laughs) You want to come over here and I'll eat your pussy melon? No, no, listen, she cuts open the melon, she takes, you know, her middle and her, not ring finger, the other one, and she, you know, she kind of, like, sticks them down in the melon and then she pulls them out and, you know, licks it clean and I can see it. I can Mm -hmm. see it. 
Mm-hmm. Porn version of May. <laughs> that's what would happen. <laughs> How could May resist? Of course she fell into that spell. <laughs> <laughs> so before all of that happens, of course, May has to get her lazy eye corrected with a special contact lens. And what follows is we get this quick snapshot. So we get a bit of an introduction to her life where she's talking to Susie. We see that she makes her own clothes. She has this flirtatious relationship with Polly. And of course, she's also trying to initiate contact with Adam. And this leads into a creepy encounter at a restaurant where he falls asleep and she touches his hand without his consent. And he wakes up and she falls over and then runs away because she's flustered. It's beyond just touching his hand. She places her face in his hand. Yes. Yeah. And it's real creepy shit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, of course, friend of the show, BJ Colangelo, wrote a piece for Brian Christopher's column, Let's Scare Brian to Death, about this film. And in it, she talked about if May weren't a woman, we wouldn't excuse half of the things that she does in this film. And she highlighted that this scene in particular, it cues us very directly, like she is a kind of sexual predator that we make excuses for. And if you flipped the sexes around and Mm -hmm. a man did this to a woman, it would be like calling the police, pressing charges, this guy would be going away. Like we sympathize with her because it's like, oh, this poor, awkward girl, instead of like if it was a man it'd be like oh my god this is a creepy ass fucker yeah yeah no i i, w- I would agree with that yeah mm-hmm. and, and it's interesting it's the whole project of the movie i feel like it's a character study of a really <laughs> fucked up person who you still feel sympathy for because you spend so much time with her yes yeah but hypothetically if the director of this film, I'm going to not say look at McKee, but let's say someone made this film who, let's say, was accused, a male accused of sexual harassment. This could be his thesis film for being like, no, but see, it's not just men. It's also women. Oh, God. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, again, I doubt that's the case, but I could easily see that being like, a look at this. Double standard. Like when somebody's trying to justify like uh, 40-year-old men dating teenagers. They're like, they know what yeah. they're doing. Like that kind of thing. She was a very mature 17. Exactly. Yeah. Which in this case, it's like, oh, she's just socially awkward. She doesn't know any better. And it's like, but we as an audience, of course, know, right? Yeah. But I think you're right, Katie. That's part of what makes this so interesting to watch is that I was cringing. My husband was watching this with me. And at this point, he was like, it's too awkward. I can't watch this anymore. Mm -hmm. And he left because it was making me feel gross. But we also forgive her for this because we know that she doesn't mean it in that way, or at least not at this point in the film. She does have an innocence to her, which is interesting. Maybe from being so disconnected from humanity that she's doing these things with, like, not necessarily with intent, she's just doing them. Hmm. I agree with you, but then when she gives that story about the dog guts and she's, like, really happy about it. Now, I agree, there's there's a childlike innocence to it, but how did we get from childlike innocence to being, like, fascinated by the macabre? Yeah, I mean, she's a bit of a, like, Wednesday Adams in that regard, isn't she? She's just yeah. a bit of a dark kid. <laughs> yeah, one thing I like about this movie is it does blend horror and comedy in really interesting ways, and one of them is making you feel uncomfortable that way. Before I was talking about the central joke of like, well, be careful what you wish for when you say you want a a goth girlfriend or whatever. And that's an interesting uh, sort of a joke. And the way that it makes you feel really uncomfortable with this character, but also identify with her. It's it's fucking with you. And I think Lucky McKee 
finds it amusing the way that he's fucking with you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because this movie is, it's really just, it's a lot of fucking around and playing with our emotions and also with May's emotions. So this eventually leads to a bit of a relationship. So after she tells that gross out story, which I find very funny, but it is (laughs) icky and inappropriate and she doesn't pick up on the social cues quite right. My sister's a veterinarian, and so I get kind of a kick out of all of the gross animal stuff. Wait, have you heard stories like this before? No, 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 no. She, <laughs> no it's, it's never anything like that. But it is kind of amusing to me, you know, the whole veterinary setting, because my sister's a veterinarian. <laughs> she loves animals more than anybody. That's why you get into it. <laughs> she wants to save the kitties and the puppies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's not like she gets off on the joy of what has happened to this animal, right? Uh, like if she has, she doesn't tell me about it. Um, <laughs> well, but May clearly does a little bit. Oh, yeah, she totally yeah, she totally gets off on it. Yeah. I don't know if you guys ever watch any true crime stuff or anything like that, but it's it's one of the things that I like. And there's always this thing of, like, Everybody always wants to know why people do the things that they do and what goes right. into, like, the soup that makes them the way that they are. And there's kind of a lot of that in this movie. You know, like, you could say that, like, her becoming desensitized to violence from doing all this stuff with the animals in the clinic and things like that. Mm-hmm. Right. Or even it's, like, how serial killers often experiment on or kill animals. And she's kind of found this perfect covert operation where mm-hmm. she can dissect animals or right. sew them up. Yeah, and oh. like, and it's literally her job, and she gets paid for it. I didn't even think about it like that. Like, yeah, she's basically in the job of like how serial killers get started as children, mm-hmm. and because she is in a childlike mental state, yeah, that that's just what she's doing. She's always been on the road to becoming a serial killer. Yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, the core thing with that, of course, is that a lot of people work at veterinary clinics and had no friends when they were children, and blah blah blah, and don't right. kill people. So you know, it's not an excuse. Right now, Katie. How do you know that your sister hasn't killed people is what I'm asking. Um, <laughs> hmm. <laughs> we'll circle back to you on that. Yeah. We'll come back to that question. I've never thought about it, so I can't say <laughs> Look in the basement, Katie. Look in the basement. Well, she does have a storage space in the basement of her apartment building. Maybe I should go check it out sometime. <laughs> Katie, we have watched enough horror films to know what that <laughs> means. <laughs> <laughs> She says so, it's a bike, but... Oh my god. <laughs> so, speaking of spaces that contain horrors, we eventually get to see the inside of Adam's room, which is a collage of horror movie paraphernalia. It includes a prop knife that she is happy to impale herself on. Doesn't this kind of remind you of all those horror bros, though? It's like, oh man, the chicks are gonna dig this! Oh yes, big time, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that Lucky McKee is kind of making fun of I assume himself a little bit here with this yeah. character. Just guys who watch cannibal movies on dates and stuff like that. <laughs> it's a litmus test. It's like, let me put me in this movie. Sorry, I don't actually think Lucky McKee is a creep. I don't think. <laughs> but could you just see, he's like, oh, I'm going to put myself in this movie, but not tell anyone. I'm going to see how people react to these scenes that are me and see if like, how that plays and see yeah, if this goes people well. People do stuff like that. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is he shows girls this movie in the same way that Adam shows Jack and Jill to May. And then if they're not disgusted, then he knows, okay, I can keep this girl around. Pretty much, yeah. We cannot tag Lucky McKee in the social tweets. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he's on social media anyway. So it's funny good. because that actually does remind me of a guy I was friends with in high school. Name's Isaac. 
he was like this goth kid and we were paired up as partners in chemistry class and i remember the first day of chemistry lab he told me the whole time he was a real life vampire and all of his friends were real life vampires in new york and blah 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 blah. they drank blood and then at the end of class he's like yeah it's pretty cool how you weren't freaked out by my vampire friends like you're all right that's hot people do stuff like that you know (laughs) did he also do larping because that's not hot (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I wasn't into him, so it wasn't like that. Fair enough. <laughs> I apologize to any LARPers. I realize that sounded very insensitive. I know. I, I've never LARPed myself, but I've seen an American Dad episode about it, and it seems like a fun thing for some people. I'm just, I'm not into role play. that's all. I'm not either, to be honest. You can be a LARPer. <laughs> there we go. The crack of Renaissance fairs, maybe. Oh, dear. Okay, so things seem to go swimmingly, except, of course, then they go for a kiss, and the kiss does not go well, and she storms home, and she smacks Susie's case and retribution, and this is the first indication that the glass is starting to crack yeah both real life and her mind well because i mean yeah this is essentially the first time that she's ever gotten close to anyone who's not this doll and also now the first time that she's been rejected by anybody mm-hmm. yeah or the most recent time that she's been rejected she had like serious feelings yeah it, it's the first time she's been rejected since feeling close like leg- legitimately close to someone yeah, yeah. like it, it actually matters yeah exactly so at work, Polly continues to put the moves on her. She even pawns off her pussy cat. Okay, I thought this conversation was quite hilarious, but I was bothered that I should have read into the racism, the racistness of Anna Ferris's character because the cat is Lupe, but mm-hmm. she keeps calling it Loopy. Yeah. Loopy the cat. <laughs> it's funny because I watched the movie with subtitles on and I was like, I thought it was Lupe. Okay, no. I guess maybe. <laughs> it 100% is Lupe. <laughs> I mean, we're also acting like Dr. Zarkazian is a good person, but he clearly should not be running an animal hospital because he keeps losing things inside of animals and sending them home with the wrong kinds of sutures. Well, he's not stocked with the correct sutures. <laughs> I guess. So May jumps back to Adam. She leaves him a very uncomfortable phone message, which Mm. is awkward city because haven't we all left a phone message where we're just like, stop talking, stop talking, hang up the phone and the message right now. I wrote in my notes, oh my God, this voicemail. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, or I feel like the modern day equivalent is when you send a text and you don't get a reply and then you send another text. Yes. I've sent you 78 texts. How come you haven't responded? Yeah. Yeah, and then you're like, why haven't you responded to my 36 texts? And that's text number 37. And then you're like, oh, fuck, I went too far. (laughs) And this is why I'm never drinking again. Until you start thinking about all those text messages you sent. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, fuck. We've all been there. So she decides that the best case is for her to stand in front of his house until he opens the door. And then... This somehow works, and she manages to convince him to come for a macaroni dinner and a screening of his college movie, Jack and Jill. There is a really good moment, though, when they're eating dinner. He's about to put macaroni in his mouth, and she goes, do you want to hear about my day at work? And he, like, visibly, like, stops putting the food in his mouth and puts his fork back down on the plate. Yeah. Yeah, he heard the dog gut story. He knows what he's in for. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he's not a dumb guy. He's not always on the up and up, but... He's learning. Just a selfish person takes more than he gives. 
Well, here's the thing. By this point, he's already delivered the line that he likes weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, he likes weird and Polly loves weird. Mm-hmm. And I can't help but feel that this is the part of the film that is condemning Adam's character. Like, he doesn't actually like May. He does think that she's too weird, which is why after the kiss and the phone message, he didn't call her back. I think he just came over here because he thought she was going to be an easy lay. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And he just thinks, yeah, this girl's like so pathetic. She'll totally go for me. Yes. Desperation. Yeah. And then, of course, he's also like, oh, I've got this movie that I can show her, which is, you know, going to inflate my ego because look at me. I'm so important. I've made a movie. It's a black and white silent cannibalism film scored to hanky panky. Yeah. Yeah. And and there is that litmus test element in there because as they're watching it, he keeps looking over at her like, does she like it? Is she into it? So I don't know. Maybe he hasn't completely written her off yet. That's such a masturbatory thing, though. I know exactly what you're talking about, too. Like, it's just so gross. It's like, he's basically giving himself an orgasm watching her watch his film. And that credit. (laughs) Okay, so this credit. What does the credit say? (laughs) Regia D. Adam Stubbs, which I believe is Italian. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I wrote that in my notes, too. I was like, he wrote it in Italian. (laughs) Oh, my God. I love it because it's so fucking narcissistic. It's like so it's like when a first-time filmmaker releases a film and it's like, a film, bye. <laughs> yeah. like, I'm sorry, who the fuck are you? <laughs> it's so disgusting. It is so sick. And I've still met people like this on the festival circuit. And oh, it's sure, just there's lots like, of them. There's mm-hmm. so many. <laughs> there's so many of them. I feel like that's why we all had this reaction because we were like, we we know these people and we're always just like, oh, yeah, dude. Like, and it's yeah. always a dude. I've screened short films for horror festivals. Oh. The whole short film aspect of it is pretty realistic. Oh, it's spot on. Yeah. <laughs> now, with that said, though, what do we think of this short film, Jack and Jill? Because I feel like if I saw this out of context and I just saw this at a festival, I'd be like, yeah, it's kind of funny. Yeah, I kind of liked it. <laughs> I, I kind of like it, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's the trick. Make a good short, but then don't be an asshole at the yeah. end of it. Don't put, was it Regia D? Don't put Italian on it. Don't put French on it. Don't do any of that. Yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> If you're making a short film, I always find that kind of pretentious. When someone makes a five-minute movie and the first minute is all credits, I'm all like, okay. <sighs> okay, I know this is pretentious of myself to say this, but like, I don't really like to watch shorts that much. I know a lot of people that do, and they love it. Um, and also, it's a good way to like, you know, see talent and like whatever. Yeah, that's um, what they're really great for, I think. Yeah, I just don't. And so, like, if a fantastic guys, I don't, I don't go due to the shorts programs. I've never been asked to judge shorts, um, and I probably never will now. Um, but <laughs> Strike that off the list. <laughs> it's just not my cup of tea, personally. I know they're on the list, Joe, and you can cut this out if you want to, but it's just not my favorite thing to watch. I mean, I think it's just a different mode of filmmaking, right? I mean, one of the things that I like about features is that we can get the kind of in-depth character study that we're getting in this movie. Mm-hmm. I think May could work as a short film of a slightly kooky woman who works at an animal hospital and she ends up having a weird encounter with a dog. I could see yeah. that as a short. But... Or even like one of their dates could be a yeah. short. 
you know? Yeah. Or, or yeah. And, like, she she goes on a date, and then the capper is she goes home, and she, are, she already has, like, a human doll or something. Right, exactly. Yeah. 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 But, you know, for this film, for it to really work as well as it does, it has to be a feature... Because, like, we keep talking about, it, it's it's a build-up. You spend all this time with her, and I think it's 55 minutes in that you get the first kill. I think you're right. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, you spend all this time with her, and, and it's a character study. And a character study, I don't know, it's probably possible, but I think doing a character study in five or six minutes would be pretty difficult. Yeah, yeah I agree. it'd be tough. So, speaking of a little bit of blood, we get some here where she... Decides to remake the short that he has shown her in real life by biting him and she draws blood and she thinks that it's kind of sexy and he is not into it. So he just immediately leaves and ghosts the fuck out of her. Yeah, he ghosts her. And then when she tries to do that, I'm just showing up at your house uninvited thing again. She actually overhears him, not just with another woman, but also describing her as a lunatic to his workout roommate. Yeah. That sucks. And she's right there on the porch, too. She's not, like, out in the bushes or anything. She's standing, like, an inch from the door, which I find kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. She doesn't even have the kind of stalker in sync to hide in the bushes. She's like, nah, I'm just going to stand on the porch. Well, yeah. <laughs> the, the door's open a crack. Like, his hand is there. Like, yeah, it's, it's very risky, but she clearly doesn't give a fuck. No, because she's got nothing to lose, if you think about it. Well, I mean, I guess she thinks that Her dignity. she still has a chance with this guy. Yeah. Yeah, I think to her, she's got a lot to lose because at this point, she is fully like, if I don't have this guy, I'm going to die. I'm, I'm just going to. Right. But it's also like, okay, she thinks that by hammering it in, it's going to make it better. And I've met people like that. And it's like, no, 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 no. You've got to give it space or just yeah. fucking know when to back off. But it's bad social skills, which I mean, we see where it comes from with her. But I've met plenty of people like that. Oh, yeah. And it's really uncomfortable, and it's also really hard to... I'm not defending Adam by any stretch of the imagination, but, like, it's also hard to tell someone, like, the way you are is not correct. Yeah, like, <laughs> I liked you until I knew who you were, and now I don't oh. want to be around you at all. Like, yeah. So it's hard to say to somebody. And another thing with it is, is, like, with her having the bad social skills, she kind of thinks she's given him what he wants, you know? She sees the biting yes. in the movie, and she's like, oh, cool, yeah, let's do that. This is you what know, he's into, right? that he doesn't appreciate. Everyone, you don't need to change yourself or adapt yourself to fit someone of what you think someone wants. That's literally the way to a toxic and terrible relationship. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. She should be trying to find her own weirdo as opposed to fitting whatever Adam's mold of her is. Yeah. And in a different movie, I could see that being the actual story. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to just the realization, mm, human people are not for me. I'm going to make my own friend. That's the short film. When they're <laughs> alive, they're very disappointing. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to control people when they're alive. They're so much more pliable when they're uh, inanimate. Yeah, but the yes. smell, Joe, the smell. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I do have questions about the longevity of Amy. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that shit. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so at this point, this is when Polly calls, and we get this opportunistic take advantage of sex capade, where we get some melon eating. Yes, I'm using it as a euphemism. <laughs> sure. This is also when May 
decides that, you know what, she's going to do something else in her life, so she's going to volunteer for those blind kids that she keeps seeing in the park. So she does. She has a very interesting encounter with the girl who runs the front desk at this daycare institute kind of place. What did y'all think of this character? Uh, I mean, I'm not going to say her exact line, but she goes, I'm looking for kids. Oh, R word? Deaf? Crippled? Dumb? Well, what's the difference? You don't like a certain type of blind kid? Oof. Yeah, Yeah, this is one of the meaner jokes in the movie. Mm -hmm. It feels like a weird kind of, okay, well, May is off kilter and she's a little bit odd and unusual, but at least she's not this person who is actually working with children who are disabled. Yeah, that's... Ooh, yeah, yeah, that's a great point, because in some ways, like, May is the most sympathetic person in the movie. Like, everyone around her is kind of an asshole, you know? Yes, yeah. She's not acting correctly, according to societal norms, but she's not doing it maliciously. That's a very mild way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to be respectful, because, like, I don't know. I think you could very easily, like, show this movie to a psychologist or something, and they would be like... Let me tell you where she is on the spectrum. Yeah, yeah. Or just watch yeah. the first 45 minutes and you'd be like, that poor girl. Mm-hmm. But then we kind of get into a debate, though, of nature versus nurture, you know, because if you didn't have the prologue, that would kind of make sense. You can say that. But then it's like, OK, well, no, but her mother made her this way. But yeah, she does display some very on the spectrum behaviors in this film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's why I kind of don't like the comparisons to Carrie, because Carrie, we see this like weird indoctrination into religiousness, and it's a focal point of the film, whereas all we get of the mother in this film is this glimpse, and the, you know, the mother is, she's handling things poorly, but she's not doing it to harm her daughter, it just kind of happens that way. Right, yeah. I wonder if the extended prologue that got cut, like what the mother, how she was portrayed in that. Yeah, I agree. I'm curious. And it's not a feature on the Blu-ray because it ain't there. No, I know it's not. But it's like, I don't really think the movie needs to be longer, but I am curious about it. Yeah, no, I agree with that 100%. (gasps) That's the short film. That's the short. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, no, that's what you do with shorts. Instead of taking a short and stretching it to feature length, you just do a feature length sequel to your short. Um, Interesting. Okay. I fixed the problem, guys. There you go. You have solved it. That's a great idea. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, a white man has solved it. <laughs> <laughs> there, I did it. I'm a miracle worker. <laughs> uh, you glasses and ponytail freak. <laughs> I just rewatched an OT movie uh, like a week and a half ago, and I will tell you it fucking holds up. It kind of feels like that's what this movie is also doing in that makeover scene. Like, there, I put a contact in. Now you're gorgeous. (laughs) (laughs) Angela Bettis, you're so hideous with your hair all ruffled. (laughs) Oh, I would also like to say, I don't know if it was a particularly 2002 thing, but I found her just ridiculously skinny. Mm. I know it's like not an appropriate thing to say, but I was like, oh my god, I really just want to give her a cheeseburger. I think that that's honestly just how she looks, because Mm -hmm. I think that's how she's looked in everything I've seen her in. Yeah, I think, yeah. Well, even in the stills for 12-hour shift, she she looks exactly the same. She's Mm -hmm. always skinny. She really does, yeah. Yeah, she's also not aging, so I can only assume that she (laughs) is killing blind children and 
sucking on their blood or bathing in it or something. Yeah. <laughs> Angela Bettis, are you a vampire? Hit us up on Twitter. <laughs> Let Text. us know. <laughs> Angela Bettis, we're leaving you a 36 voicemail. Are you a vampire? We still need to know. <laughs> the main reason she wants to volunteer at this blind kid's daycare is because she sees a kid who I think reminds her of her at that age. And this girl's name is Petey. Petey makes her an ashtray that has her name on it. And then she has these back-to-back bad encounters with Adam at the laundromat where he pretends that a machine is not working so he can leave. And then also she goes to Polly's house and she sees that Polly has another woman there. No, no, no. She has a pair of legs there. She has a pair of legs there. She's got gams only. Which is a pretty funny touch. (laughs) The gams thing, though, like, my husband says that word. Like, not not seriously, but, like, he's like, look at those gams. And I'm just like, whoop! It's so gross. It's hilarious that you don't like it because it's such a 1940s film noir kind of gumshoe thing. Oh, so that's why I don't like it. Yeah, I think it's just old fashioned. Yeah, it's like calling somebody a broad. Oh, yeah. I I find it very funny. (laughs) That broad with the games. I did appreciate the shut up, hooker. (laughs) That's very, that's a very early 2000s calling somebody hooker. Yes. And very Anna Ferris or Anna Ferris. It's either that or it's a drag queen. Right. Yes. <laughs> we have heard many a drag queen call another drag queen a hooker. Yep. Hooker. <laughs> so after these terrible encounters with dates, May goes home and the cracking on Susie's case begins to escalate. And in a fit of rage, May inadvertently kills Lupi or Lupe, the cat, <laughs> with the ashtray. <laughs> And uh, at this point, the cracking intensifies even further. She can't even cut it out. She's just hearing it all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's a really, really good sound effect. Yeah. Yeah. It's real creepy. Yeah, that scene in the shower where she's just screaming, and you think maybe she's managed to get it under control, and then it just starts up again. Ooh. <laughs> So, in an extremely ill-advised decision, she decides to bring Susie to the daycare to show the blind kids. And during an altercation, the box shatters on the ground, the kids crawl over broken glass, Susie is destroyed in the process, and May nearly scratches her own eyes out afterwards. There's a lot of eye trauma in this, which is a very Italian horror touch, actually. It's almost like opera, Dario Argento's movie. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fuck you, Adam. (laughs) (laughs) I think that plays into the fact that this movie is so fixated on parts, though, right? Because it's all about, like, scopophilia and fetishism. Totally, yeah. And she did lose her job from the blind place after this, right? Oh, 100%. (laughs) Yeah, don't think they let her come back, no. (laughs) She's probably not allowed near children after this. (laughs) Man. This is really when the film, I mean, quote unquote, picks up, right? Oh, thank God. I'm so bored. Oh, it's so boring. Gore, for sure. This is, this is the turning point in terms of gore, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry, gore hounds. We got you, man. This is when the games start to hit the floor. I will, no, I will, because, hey, so wait. I, oh, sorry. You haven't mentioned the punk yet. So sorry. Keep talking. That's actually right where we're at. So May is despondent. She spends a little bit of time alone in her apartment with the dead cat. And Not then she eventually... dead cat. It's so, it's very disturbing. Yeah, it's really she fucked up. She just sprays it with air freshener. Oh, the smell, man. The smell. But, like, did she not put her parents to, like, rest in a cemetery or an incinerator somewhere? Like, she should know how to handle dead things. 
question mark. She works in a vet. Yeah, I mean, you would have thought she'd be more adept, but I think it's also at this point, she's gone. Yeah. She's really lost her mind. Mm. So she eventually wanders to a park bench, and at this point she picks up a very kindly punk named Blank, who is played by James Duvall, and folks will recognize him as Frank from Donnie Darko. Oh! Oh! I had to look him up because he was so familiar. You were trying to place him? Yes. Yeah. Like, I was like, that face looks familiar, but I looked at his filmography and like didn't catch it. And I guess I didn't see Donnie Darko on there. Now, here's my question. Is this supposed to be Lucky McKee? Like a kindly person who also wants to pick up strangers? Yeah. <laughs> like maybe, <laughs> maybe Adam isn't the Lucky McKee stand-in. Maybe, maybe this guy is. Interesting. Uh, why, why would you think that? Because he's, he's sort of like an outsider in the story? Maybe, honestly, the the line, do you have any ice cubes I could rub on my nipples, um, <laughs> just seems like something someone named Lucky McKee would say. <laughs> oh my god, Trace. What, you hadn't managed to get in your inflammatory comment yet, so you were like, I gotta get this in under the wire. No, no, I just thought it was really funny, and if it doesn't work in the edit, you can cut it out, but honestly, that line is something. That line's really funny, and when he takes his shirt off. I mean, this whole character where you're just like, oh, okay, this is just a different variation on a fuckboy where he literally is like, ah, she invited me back to her place, so I'll just keep taking items of clothes off until I'm nude. He's got to be gutter punk, though. Like, he's got to be real stinky. Because, like, I know I'm hung up on the smell, but, like, for him to not say anything when there's, like, dead cat stench, like, he's got to be gutter punk. He's got to smell pretty bad himself. Maybe the apartment has, like, aired out a little bit since she put Lupe into the freezer. Maybe. Oh, yeah, that's true. Maybe. I don't think so. (laughs) (laughs) I think it probably smells real bad. I bet she probably hasn't showered in a little while either. Yeah. That wouldn't be top of mind for her. And this is the first instance, too, where it's like, okay, she kills him with the scissors, but, like, we don't see it. We see Mm -hmm. the aftermath, and then it cuts back and shows us, like, her actually, like, stabbing him in the face. Yeah. So much blood. Yes, and I love, like, again, it's the kickoff to the climax. I love the, I need more parts. Like, it's such mm-hmm. a good delivery from her. It, it, it really feels like the film, like, picks up, like, like a, like a pulse at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because all of a sudden she's got a mission, right? Like, she's not kind of wandering around aimless. She's like, oh, right, I've got all these beautiful parts of people in my mind. All I gotta do is pick up an external freezer on wheels and go around and collect them. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe, I guess she's found her purpose in life, huh? Exactly. She she's moved on from animals to people. And she gets, quote unquote, pretty to do her business. Because it's Halloween night. Yeah. Yeah, she like gets all this confidence. And I, I don't really know what to make of that. Like, it, is it because, yeah, she she's made this realization, oh, this is what I need in life. So mm-hmm. boom, she's got her confidence. And boom, that's why she's all of a sudden so pretty. Maybe oh, she's like self-actualized. Like, I kind of think of Ms. 45 in terms of the Halloween scene. Right. I did see that in a couple of reviews. Yeah, yeah. Like, similarly in that movie, she gets all dressed up for her big uh, Halloween vengeance spree. So... I mean, even in Showgirls, right? The best film of all time. That's what Elizabeth Berkley does after her friend gets raped. <laughs> Too soon? Too soon? Coming up on 25 years. <laughs> I was just gonna I was just gonna laugh really hard, and then I was like, no, I don't want to laugh at that. <laughs> no, it's, it's the, the worst part of, part of the movie. But anyway, yeah. I think you're 100% correct, Katie. This feels like self-actualization, and then, just like you said, Trace, 
she knows what she wants to do. She knows what she has to do. And as a result, she's like, okay, how do I achieve this? It's costume time. Like, in a way, it's almost like she gets to put on the persona of a sexy, confident woman who can just, like, breeze into situations, murder a bunch of people, and then walk away unscathed. It's what she's been building to the entire movie, but, yeah, I don't know where I was going. And, you know, all these assholes <laughs> in her life keep trying to use her sexually, so maybe she's like, fine, fine. If this is, yeah. this is what you like about me, then I'm just going to do that. Because if the whole movie is about being mistreated by romantic potential candidates, like, this is her sort of owning that, right? And it allows her to not only get through the door of people that might have previously said like no you need to stay outside but in this case it allows her to get close enough to kill them. yeah right. and blend in and and you know the whole thing with halloween is dressing up in a costume you know gives you it, it, there's a certain lowering of, of inhibitions involved right yeah which is exactly what happens so she uh <laughs> so she starts by going after polly <laughs> you're so polite about this psycho killer lady <laughs> But, but that's what BJ's talking about her article, right? It's, oh, we're being gentle and maybe even forgiving with her because she's this awkward female character. And had it been a man who, even if he was awkward, we would be talking about this a lot differently, I feel like. Mm, yeah, I think so. It is interesting because we've got Adam apologizing to her and we also see her at work where she begins stealing equipment, which is pretty clearly <laughs> going to be used for nefarious purposes. Yeah, she's not going to make crafts out of them. She's not going to make yeah. dolls for someone that's seen. But it, like, it doesn't feel like a murder preparation montage like we might get in a film that's about a man, right? Like I'm, I'm thinking of Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer or like Maniac or something and there's a lot of humor in Meg. Henry in particular yeah. is a very serious. Yeah. Maybe that's the other reason, right? So it's a female protagonist, but also the comedy constantly disarms us to just how homicidal she can be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I knew a girl in high school and she loved this movie. Like fucking loved it. Tried to get me to watch it all the time. I and... thought you were going to say that she like went off and killed people. Yeah. No, 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 no. <laughs> I was linking it to our conversation on The Craft. Okay. Where I'm like, okay, I think maybe there's a group of people who watch this movie and they're like, oh, she's an outsider like me. Now, right. granted, this maybe isn't the best movie to have that revelation with. <laughs> but I do think that there's something about watching this movie and you're watching this girl who is kind of, kind of she is an outcast. She is a quote unquote loser. Mm -hmm. And you can watch this and kind of feel, again, like not alone. Now, I think The Craft might be a better movie to like yeah for go sure. with that with because i mean yeah, whatever but with this one yeah i i can see that being the case and kind of overlooking the fact that yeah she's really 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 disturbed and at the time you know there were so few examples of fucked up girls right in pop culture that i could see latching onto this more then than you maybe you would even now exactly right yeah i was trying to think of a close comparison okay in the realm of characters like May, who comes to mind. And I actually got the impression that if the girls from Ginger Snap had not encountered a werewolf and had just kept their kind of macabre upbringing where they were interested in death and being outsiders, yeah. they might have grown up into someone who would have 
difficulty connecting socially with romantic partners and social conventions in terms of conversation and stuff. So you're saying it's good they got a werewolf and one of them died. (laughs) (laughs) It allowed them to be more proactive and channel their female (laughs) rage into healthier forms of expression. (laughs) Have you guys seen the movie Excision? Yes. Yes. Oh my god. (laughs) Okay. You know what, Katie? Just like throw my example out in the trash because Excision is definitely the better way. You're right. Listeners, I cannot wait to cover this fucking movie because that is one of my favorite films of the past decade. Yeah. I think it's maybe 15 years. I don't know. It's really fucking good. And again, another revelatory female lead performance, right? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, a double feature with May and Excision. That would be exceptional. Holy shit. And then, like, never date a woman again. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Well, that sounds lovely. And now I kind of want to go off and do it. Mm hmm. So basically, we are up to our kill scenes, folks. So we get this montage of May making herself over. She goes to Polly's place where she first kind of seduces Polly into exposing her neck, and then she slits her throat using Um, double scalpels. Polly being like, I trust you not to hurt me. And I'm like, bitch. (laughs) She is circling these scruples around your neck. Like, come on. Maybe Polly's not the smartest Clearly not. (laughs) There's such a thing as role play, as we talked about earlier, but when you're using actual sharp objects, get your safe word out of the way early, or maybe call it a night. Yeah, like just hovering a scalpel over somebody's neck is (laughs) ill-advised. So I think her death is okay. I like the presentation of it. I think it could use a little bit more gore, because in my opinion, like if you slit someone's throat, there's going to be a bit more blood gushing out of that. Mm. Yeah, there'd be a good arterial spray. I love the smash cut during Ambrosia's kill scene to the milk and the blood. Yes. Yes. It is gorgeous looking. I was like, ooh. ooh." (laughs) Yeah, it is really good. (laughs) And who is the editor on this film? Oh, okay. I'm sorry. We touched on it earlier, but in case y'all missed the name or y'all were like, who the fuck is that? There were three editors, and one of them is the Ryan Johnson, director of Knives Out and uh, fucking Star Wars Last Jedi, Looper Brick, all that shit. Never heard of him. But it's bizarre. But clearly he made friends with the cinematographer Steve Yedlin because he's shot all of Johnson's films since this. Wow. Well, I'm going to blow your guys' mind. There's actually a shout out to May in The Last Jedi. In The Last Jedi, there's a character named Captain Kennedy, and May's last name is Kennedy. I think he's put references to May in all of his movies. In Brick, there's that party scene, and one of the one of the characters, a background character, is dressed as May. He's put a lot of references to this movie in his work. Wow. That's awesome. Good for him. You know, he sounds like like Mike Flanagan in that way where he'll like, you know, keep rewarding people or like calling back to things that like got him where he is today. Mm-hmm. But yeah, well, it just makes me laugh that there's a shout out to this movie in a fucking Star Wars movie. That makes me so happy. <laughs> That's I hilarious. Arguably the most controversial Star Wars film. Well, it would have been until Rise of Skywalker, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Mm, <they're> <laughs> controversial <laughs> for different reasons. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's true. So Ambrosia gets it next. The Gams have it. May then begins to cart respective body parts around in her little portable freezer. Mm-hmm. There's that funny line where she encounters somebody who thinks that, you know, she's just got a great costume. And then she heads over to Adams. So she stabs Adam's new girlfriend, Hoops, who is played by Nora Zahetner. So she's in a lot of TV, but the main thing I know her from. So did y'all watch Grey's Anatomy ever? No. Early on. Okay, did you watch Joe in season six, the finale, the, the shooter episode? 
No, that would have been after I stopped watching. Basically, there's like a whole thing where like they absorb this other hospital and they got a bunch of new people. And there was this one doctor who like, or like an inter- intern or something who was a huge bitch. And it was played by this girl. Okay. And basically when the shooter comes to the hospital, like she's the first one to get shot in the face. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay. <laughs> See, I actually know her from Brick because she's the femme fatale in oh, yeah. Ryan Johnson's Brick. So I, I was trying to figure out like which one came first and whether she was in this movie and she caught his eye and then worked on his or vice versa yeah, like Britain oh we just need this little cameo yeah. part well she's in heroes and everwood too right yes she's had a good career when she shows up i was like oh yeah hey i like you <laughs> her death is really cool too like the scalpel in the neck that's pretty great yeah i think this is, is well done you know it's it's bloody and i think angelo bettis's performances contributes to that like uh when you're talking yeah. about her killing ambrosia the way she just like leaps on her yeah yeah and she's so cold and flat at this point. You just know that there's a bunch of guys who think that she's at her hottest in these scenes too, right? Well, they're not paying attention to the film. <laughs> <laughs> if you found her hot in these scenes, you are Adam, and you're probably going to get murdered by someone. <laughs> Lucky McKee yes. tried to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> we tried to warn you. Left oh, 36 man. phone messages. Oh, God, that's so cringe. So at this point, everybody did. She stabs Adam. We get to see it a couple of times. It's very satisfying. I liked it. (laughs) It is satisfying. Sorry, Adam, you're dead. What you get, motherfucker? (laughs) So to the tune of a children's choir and a plucky piano score, May assembles a new friend, Amy, out of parts and also material. What do you folks think of Amy as a design construct? What is the head made of? Is it a melon? Like, she made it out of cloth, and then she stuffs it full of more cloth. Okay. Yeah. I like the look of it. I was grossed out. It took me this rewatch to realize that she has skinned Lupe and (gasps) used that as part of the... She doesn't waste any parts. Did not catch that either. Clearly, I did not watch this movie closely enough. (laughs) (laughs) But wait, so wait, what is Lupe? Like, what, what is that? I don't know where it ends up, but there's a part where you see her cutting out like a furry gray gotcha. section, and you're like, what is that material? That is the cat. Ugh. Maybe it's what's wrapped around whatever the head is made of. Maybe. I don't know. Listeners, this is your homework. We need you to go back and figure out where Lupe ends up on Amy's body. <laughs> okay, here's my question. What do y'all think of the ending in general? Is this a tragic ending? Is it a happy ending? Is it a she got what she deserved in me? <laughs> so the final piece is that she realizes that this new friend of hers can't see her. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Because she doesn't have eyes. So she plucks out her eye, which is that opening scene that we saw that we didn't really understand. And then she seemingly collapses. It stays intact, Amy. though. The, the fact that the eye stays intact is very puzzling to me. Oh, yeah. Logistically, this part doesn't make a ton of sense. She's got skills <laughs> in this department. Yeah. Yeah. She's very good with weapons. I guess. I'll, I'll let it slide, I guess. She ends up putting the eye into Amy, and then she seemingly passes out. Some people have inferred that she dies here. I don't think that's correct. but No. The final shot that we see is Amy's arm reaching over and patting her as a either comforting pat or an embrace, and that's how the movie ends. I think it's a very sad ending. You know, it's sort of the culmination of the challenge that the movie has for you, which is to, like, identify with this person. Mm-hmm. Now you've seen, like, you really see, they lay it all out with the gore and everything of, like, 
what this loneliness has actually led to and it's sort of challenging you and when the arm reaches out you can interpret it one or two ways you can be like ah you know it's like a jump scare almost or you can you know feel happy for her that she you know now she has her friend or you can feel sad about it because all she wanted was a friend I don't know. I think that it's left open to interpretation, but it's supposed to evoke some sort of emotion in you. I find it sad. I find it very tragic of just like, you know, there's a certain inevitability of what happens because of the way it's set up and you see all the elements that come into it. And you're just like, that's a that's a shame. And she's still alone. You know, I, I find it very sad. I agree with you. I do think that the... I think this is a comedic bit, but whenever the eyeball falls back on her, it was a like a funny visual to me that immediately followed by a touching slash sad, like the hand pat. Mm-hmm. Overall, I do agree with you. I think it's very sad and tragic. We obviously know what's going to happen. Like, this body's going to decompose, and, like, that's it. I guess she'll just make another friend. Or she'll be apprehended and sent away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, the cops will do their job. <laughs> or her landlord will come by and say there will be complaints and the landlord will come by and find this horrible scene laid out. Right. Yeah, I'll confess, I definitely find it sad that it's kind of come to that. And I think that's the inevitability of it. But I find it surprisingly comforting. I think it's almost sweet that this horrible plan of hers ended up working out well. She got what she actually wanted at the end of it. It's terrible for everyone else. But uh, at the end of the day, I'm that terrible person who's like, yes, BJ, I hear what you're saying about how we should be looking at this woman as a terrible person. And I see it, but I still can't yeah. help. And I honestly, I credit a lot of that to Angela Bettis's performance yes. where I just, I feel so bad for her that I want this for her. And I'm okay with the fact that she's killed four people. Well, and it's also clear that the movie empathizes with her, too, because if it didn't, we wouldn't have the hand pat. It would just be her sitting with the dead corpse Yes, Right, exactly. Like, if the movie didn't empathize with her, she'd, like, hug the corpse and the head would fall off. Yeah. Exactly. And that's what you think is going to happen when the eyeball falls. I think when I first watched this, I thought that's where it was going to end, and then it went that extra step, which comforted me somewhat. Mm -hmm. I think the eyeball falling is actually just they didn't have time to do a reshoot because it's an independent film. No. No, 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 no. That is an intentional gag. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But again, you know, that's what I like about the movie is that it does kind of leave space for you to, you know, it just wants you to have some kind of reaction. Right. Mm -hmm. It's open to what reaction you have. I think that's also why this film could never have been popular like i don't know that it would have done well as a wide release because it's too quirky and it's too odd and then this ending is too open-ended to satisfy conventional audiences who would look at it and be like that's it what the fuck yeah you're 100 percent right for av club we did a podcast about cinema score like the history of cinema score oh yeah the Ooh. movies that get f cinema scores have open-ended endings audiences don't oh like yeah it. yeah so that's May. That's May. That's May. I really enjoyed rewatching this, folks. I did too. Yeah. It's it's one to go back to and, and I think yeah, in in some ways it's very of its time and in some ways it, it really holds up. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. I've riffed quite a bit, but no, I this actually went up a half star for me, like on a rating. I really, really, really enjoyed this. 
you know, we're kind of in a place now where it's like, oh, you know, I saw like the Tina Fey is like, you know, removing the blackface episodes of 30 Rock from Hulu. And I'm like, well, yeah, those are terrible things. I still kind of think they should be there because I think we need to see the mistakes we've made. There's an element of tracks covering there with Tina Fey in particular. Well, yeah, yeah, it feels like you're trying to erase history as opposed to acknowledging, you know what, we should have done better. You know, I don't agree with the alternative, which is like HBO removing Gone with the Wind and then adding it back with like 30 minutes of educational information about why fucking slavery is bad. But maybe somewhere in the middle. But no, but I mean, like, given the climate, and since Me Too, like, watching this is probably a very different experience than when you watched it in 2003. Yeah. Um, Oh, yeah. But I think it's important to take both time periods into account when watching this film, which is, I mean, hopefully what we try to do. Yeah. yeah, and you know, even when we were you were talking about BJ's critique of the film, like that is a response and an emotion that is left open for you to have watching this mm-hmm. film. Mm-hmm. You could be angry with May. Yeah. Yeah. I like the fact that this film is complicated and it's not afraid to be controversial in that way because it's a surprisingly simple story that's done very, very well. But I think we've had a lot of rich conversation and it could have just been a shitty movie about a girl who tries to create a Frankenstein friend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And we can we can credit that to Lucky McKee. I mean, like his writing combined with Bettis's performance, I don't want to say it saves the film because there aren't a lot of weak links here for me, but they make the film. Yeah, yeah but I do think that it's one of those cases that without Angela Bettis, I don't yeah. know if it would be the same film. And I, I don't agree, know yeah. if you would if it would have as rich of an range of emotion in it. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. Well, before we announce what we're covering next week, then, uh, Katie, do you have anything you'd like to plug, announce, say, promote yourself? Well, I already plugged my column on Lifetime movies. I'm really <laughs> excited to dive into those as modern B cinema. I do a podcast with A.A. Dow called Film Club on A.B. Club. Yeah, you do. Yeah, I was working on a film festival here in Chicago, but that's kind of on hold. So right now you can find me on AV Club and uh, at Rife with Katie on Twitter if you want to hear me yell about stuff. <laughs> and do you just call him AA? Uh, no, I call him Alex, but AA <laughs> is what he goes by. On, that's like his pen name. So, you no, know, respect. That's what name. I call him because I don't know him. But like <laughs> when I watch y'all shit, I'm just like, oh, yeah, Katie and AA down. Whenever somebody has a pen name, I like to use it because, you know, that's how they like to present themselves to the world. (laughs) Just be glad that he doesn't do it in, like, Italian or something. (laughs) (laughs) That's fantastic. And on that note, um, I'll continue with our shit. If you'd like to stay in touch with us, you can like our Horror Queers Facebook page or join our Facebook group. Tweet us or follow us on Instagram at HorrorQueers or email us at HorrorQueers at gmail.com. If you have two seconds, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating or write a review. Uh, you can buy Horror Queers merch like t-shirts, stickers, mugs, pillows, and shit at tpublic.com. That is T-E-E-Public.com. Pillows and shit. I think that's funny, but, you know. <laughs> if you want more Horror Queers content, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash horrorqueers, where you can sign up for exclusive bonus episodes. For this month, uh, we are back to our regular Patreon format, no themed months with old movies now, so that means we're going to be covering new films. So this month, we're going to have a mini-sode on Dave Franco's new horror film, The Rental, and then full-length episodes on Relic, which made waves at Sundance earlier this year, and The Beach House, which made waves at <laughs> the Chattanooga Film Festival last year. I, I, I Whatever. Um, <laughs> make a, beach House making waves. 
making waves. Well, yeah, yes. And of course, uh, last week we did drop our audio commentary on I Still Know What You Did Last Summer to pair with our main feed episode on I Know What You Did Last Summer. So if you haven't uh, listened to those things, well, you should subscribe and listen to them because it's great. Joe. Yes. What are we talking about next week? We are traveling back to the year 2000 to celebrate the 20th anniversary of Michelle Pfeiffer being unable to get out of a motherfucking bathtub. (laughs) We're going to watch What Lies Beneath. Robert Zemeckis' What Lies Beneath. Like, the fact that he directed that is still kind of, like, mind-boggling to me. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, a film I'm interested in revisiting because I feel like it's a film that we collectively do not talk about all that often. And also, I remember thinking it was a little long back in the year 2000. So I'm curious to see how Joe with no sense of pacing in the year 2020 (laughs) will respond to it. It is two plus hours. I always thought that this was a very highly regarded film. Lo and behold, I did check the um, at the time reviews and they were decidedly mixed. Yeah many of which complaining about your overlong runtime and pacing issues. So yeah. <laughs> we're going to see, because I'm really excited to revisit it. Yeah. And um, before we go, I'm going to do a crossover plug and say to watch Joe and Trace on why we like the new video <laughs> series on the avclub.com. <laughs> I should have added that to the housekeeping, considering we have someone from the AV Club here. But yes, no, please check us out. It was super fun. And yeah, we're talking about monsters and magic with a bunch of fellow queers. Uh, and it's really, really good, I think. Yeah, everybody else is super famous. And then there's us. Yeah, so Pride <laughs> series that we're doing, you know, just getting influential people from the LGBTQ plus community to talk about Woo-hoo. stuff they're obsessed with. So I'm very excited <laughs> that you were a part of that. I, I'm so pleased. We are too. And again, seriously, thank you. That was awesome. <sighs> well... All good things must come to an end, so on that note, I think we can cross out May. Yes, and we can cross out Un Podcast de Horror Queers. (laughs) Fuck. Disgusting Podcast Network, home of creepy and disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas, SCP archives, weekly full cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews, listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.